You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, hey, this morning we get an opportunity to have our fourth Advent Sunday and focus on the topic of love. When I shared this with our staff this last week, one of our staff members reminded me that in the immortal words of those four British musicians, all you need is love. And you know, the fact is, if we were to stop and reflect on our daily activities, love is everywhere. It is in the phrases we use and don't even think about them. Things like, I love chocolate. We just watched the movie Wonka the other day and there's a lot of chocolate in it. And I was tempted to want lots and lots of chocolate. We talk about how we love sports teams and I was reminded Saturday that love is not easy. Love is not always kind. Why do you run the same play on third and inches that you ran on fourth and inches and just keep going back? That was my Vikings on Saturday. And loving your favorite team, which by the way, let me just set the record straight. I have people come up to me and say, you know, you do live in Kansas City and you should love the Chiefs. It is appropriate to have a favorite NFC team and a favorite AFC team. And so I love my Vikings, but I also love the Chiefs and I realize I'm derailing. So let me get back to love. We are focused on getting help with love, aren't we? In fact, the greeting card industry in 2022 was over $6.9 billion as an industry. We want somebody to help us to articulate our love for someone else. We study love and we often do it through novels or through the category of movies of romance or romantic comedies. But in our efforts and experiences of love in our real world on a day-to-day basis, we surely have come to the conclusions that all of these opportunities, all of these pursuits, all of these experiences somehow fall short to deliver lasting love, to deliver love that satisfies. So we have other opportunities in life. And one of them is the gift that God gives us of families. I surveyed my girls this last week, asking them what their favorite Christmas gifts have been through the years and why. And thankfully, that exercise produced an illustration for this sermon. And as I listened to each one of them share their favorite gifts, what was fascinating about the why was having nothing to do with how much it cost, having nothing to do with how big it was, but it had everything to do in what it communicated to them about the gift giver. Whether it was because it was a surprise, whether it was because it demonstrated that the gift giver understood them or valued them, the value of the gift for my girls was in the expression of love from the gift giver. But even that falls short at some level. And so we're constantly spending our lives looking for a true source of love, a true experience of love. And we've got to do a little work this morning to find it in this unexpected text. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the very last chapter in the Bible. 
the very last paragraph in the Bible and the very last words in the Bible, Revelation 22. And if you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, just turn to the very end of the Bible before you get to the measurements and contents, and you'll find Revelation 22. As we study this passage together, a couple things I want to highlight. First of all, this will not be the typical deep dive that we do on a Sunday morning into a text of Scripture. I'm reserving that for after the first of the year as we work to conclude our study of the book of Revelation. The second observation is communicated in the big idea in your notes. The goal that I hope to achieve in studying this passage is to be able to remind us and equip us that Christ-focused love will empower us to enjoy that for which we were created. So we'll see three attributes of Christ-focused love that begins in verse 15. And that is summarized by number one, love is marked by patterns. Love is marked by patterns. And to center in this middle section of our paragraph, I think draws this out. Look at verse 15. The apostle John writes about the revelation he's been given that outside, now before we move on, outside is a description by John as we've been studying all of the chapters leading up to this of designating that what he's describing is a group of people who are not the family of God. They're not citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so outside describes those who are outside of God's family, outside of God's covenant, outside symbolically from the book of Revelation, the city of God. And so he says outside are the dogs, the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters. And to be able to unpack all of these descriptions and why they are used and what they mean, stay tuned for our continuation of our study of Revelation after the first of the year. But I want you to focus on the last, ver- last phrase of verse 15 because I, I think that draws out the attribute of love that I'm trying to put forth. It says, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Love and practice go hand in hand. I want to show you that by a little journey that we've had as parents. It's funny how raising girls in our home, the early years are made up with dinner table conversations about how disgusting boys are. How girls are cool and boys drool. And I want to say I'm sitting right here. But then I acknowledge, yeah, boys do drool. Now, as they get older, there's this funny thing that happens around the dinner table. All of a sudden, the conversation about boys moves from they're gross and disgusting to, huh, maybe they're not that bad. And then the conversation years later moves to, I actually like a boy. What's funny, though, as parents is we evaluate that statement And we evaluate it for authenticity. And it goes a little something like this. You say you like him. But why when I watch you in the halls, do you squeal and run the other way? 
Why when there's middle school mixers do all the boys go and play basketball and all the girls stand over in the corner staring at the boys? That doesn't seem like you like them. But of course, they're just trying to figure out this attraction thing. But as we continue to complicate the like aspect, we realize that you begin dating, which, by the way, I know that's a polarizing subject, but the value of dating is that there are opportunities to evaluate and demonstrate patterns, aren't there? And then when you enter into the covenant of marriage, it's not enough to tell your wife at the altar, I love you, and then tell her that I'll tell you if that ever changes. Because the simple principle of scripture is the same principle that we experience in life. And that is this, love is marked by patterns. You can say that you love someone, but the patterns of your life will either affirm or deny that. If you love someone, you will spend time with them. If you love someone, you will sacrifice for them. If you love someone, you will seek to understand them. If you love someone, you will consider them more highly than yourself. And the patterns of your life, and not just the snapshots, will reveal the validity of that love. And so here, what the verse 15 says at the end of this list of those who are outside of the family of God is saying is that those who declare love validate it or mark it by their patterns. What do they love at the end of verse 15? Falsehood. Now, the New American Standard and the New King James translate this liars, and it it could mean liars, but if you've been with us during our study of Revelation, you know that what John has been contrasting is the counterfeit of the world system with the righteousness of the kingdom of God. That Satan is characterized by deceit. Satan is a master of lies. He's a father of lies. And I think what John is drawing out is that these who are outside of God's family love the world system. They love everything that promises to satisfy their lusts and their desires, and they are loyal to it, and they validate that by the patterns of their lives, not just their declaration of love, but also their patterns of practicing it. So verse 15, I hope at least starts the discussion and the study with showing that love is marked by patterns. So now we back up to verse 6. And study the text, looking at our final two attributes, which the second of which is love is motivated by presence. Love is motivated by presence. If you look at these verses, the verb or the noun of come or please arrive is found seven times which is appropriate as we celebrate the Advent season or the arrivals of Christ. The expectation and the anticipation of both Christ himself and his followers is that he's coming and a longing for it. In fact, look at verses 7 and 12. Jesus himself says, Behold, which Ben already mentioned, the value of recognizing behold. Behold, in Scripture, is a term used by the author or the speaker to draw attention 
by the audience to the fact that something important is coming. That something impactful is about to be said or seen. That something worthy of our attention is about to take place. And Jesus says in verse 7 and 12, Behold, and what is it that he wants our attention to be drawn toward? And that is that he's coming. Verse 20, he says, Surely I am coming. The idea, though, of presence, not presence under a tree, but presence of proximity is polarizing, isn't it? Maybe I'm the only one who's ever experienced this in my childhood years. And that was my mom saying to me, you just wait until your father comes home. Probably the only one who ever heard that. I can tell you this, what she wasn't saying was you have had such a banner day, Jeff. Your your accomplishments are so worthy of celebration that we do not want your dad to miss out. And so all of the celebration, all of the awards, all of the gifts that I'm about to bestow on you for how amazing you are, we need to just hold that off for just a little bit more time because dad's coming. No. When mom told me, you just wait until your dad comes home, she's letting me know that her cup of wrath and judgment has been exhausted. That she has nothing further that she can do for my foolish behavior. And in the immortal words of the 1960s song, here come to judge. And listen, my dad could deliver punishment. Thankfully, it was mostly done in love. But there's something about the presence of the judge when you recognize your guilt. Isn't it true that when we're flying along on the interstate and all of a sudden traffic has stopped, that usually it's because there's a car parked on the side of the road with lights on it? The presence of a judge impacts the trajectory of traffic when we are guilty. The same is true in the workplace, isn't it? The presence of your boss impacts your productivity. Presence of a judge impacts those who are guilty, and that's the negative side of things, but there's also a positive side, isn't there? Some of you who have been here on campus during the week know that there is a presence of one person that by her very voice can change the trajectory of my day to improve it. And that's my wife. Whenever I hear her voice in the hall, it changes everything. And no matter what's been happening, no matter how difficult the day is, which by the way, yes, pastors can have difficult days. When I hear the voice of my wife, I am excited. When I look down and I see my oldest daughter who's back from college sitting in the front and not being on her phone but writing notes. She is, by the way. That elicits and bubbles up within me joy. So there is a polarizing reality of presence. But what I want you to see in the words that John writes down, in the visions, and the words that are revealed to John 
is that the descriptions are here of Christ. And in the descriptions here, as well as the rest of the book of Revelation, we are confronted and stretched with our understanding of who Jesus actually is. And the Jesus that is presented in Revelation and the rest of Scripture is not just a picture of Jesus who wears a white robe, a blue sash, and is the kind of person you just want to crawl up in his lap and have him give you a hug. It's not just that. Certainly there are those aspects of him. But listen to some of the ways that Jesus is described in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, he's described as the God of the universe. Now, just imagine that. Imagine being in the presence of someone powerful. Imagine being in the presence of someone you even can imagine is powerful. And then exponentially to the infinity term, expand that. And that's who God is. Can you imagine being in his presence? That's what chapter 1 says Jesus is. In chapters 2 and 3, as we see the seven letters written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, Minor, we are reminded that Jesus sees everything clearly. The churches presented themselves to the outside world. They even saw themselves as they looked in the proverbial mirror as one thing. But then Jesus, through his letters, say, I see you ascend church, and I know you intimately. I see you, Jeff Terrell. I see you fill in your own name. And he sees you even more accurately and clearly than you see yourself. That's Jesus. In chapters 4 and 5, Jesus is described as the only one who is worthy to administrate all of the details of redemptive history. All of the ones that we see as clearly good and all of the ones we cannot comprehend like everything that we can see in the news, it seems today. This Jesus is administrating all of those details. In chapters 6 through 21, we see this Jesus pouring out his wrath and his judgment on creation, on the nations, and on the rebels of humanity over and over again, and then the knowledge that one day he will do it finally and completely. That's this Jesus. And so I don't know about you, but when I see Jesus in this way, I'm tempted to not be excited about his presence. And so how can we grow in recognizing the value of Christ so that when he says, behold, surely I am coming, we actually see it as love. Three ways I would encourage you to write these down and more importantly, answer them for yourself. Number one, Do you know him? Do you know him? Not just a version of Jesus, but do you know the Jesus who is revealed in the opening verses of Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1 says that is Jesus who by him and through him and for him, all of this has been created. And then it continues, doesn't it? 
Because in Genesis 3.15, we see that there is a promised offspring of Eve who will bruise the serpent's head and bring victory over sin, and that is Jesus. Then when Lamech names his son Noah, which means rest in Hebrew, that he's longing for someone to be born who will bring back order to this creation, bring back reconciliation to creation. And we know from the New Testament that's Jesus. And then the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that from the offspring of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And then we see in Galatians chapter 3 that that offspring is Christ. And it goes on and on and on. And my question question is, do you know that Jesus? You know, a lot of times people will say, well, I just, I just love Jesus. I'll talk to other leaders in churches or people who attend other churches and, and they'll say, well, we're just about Jesus. Usually a statement like that comes at the end of a doctrinal discussion that gets too deep for someone. Or gets to a place where their traditions or their denominational positions are challenged. And we don't like that, do we? We like to get to a place where we are comfortable with our beliefs, where we are comfortable with our understanding of this Jesus. But listen, the the Jesus of Scripture stretches us. And no matter how long you've been saved, no matter how much you think you know this Bible, no matter how many times you've read through it, Jesus should always stretch us. And boy, does he in the book of Revelation. So the question to ask yourself in order to be able to get to a place where you see that the coming of Jesus is actually love is the question, do you know him? Number two, have you submitted to him? Have you submitted to him? You know, Romans 10.9 is one of the most simple statements of how to get saved. If you ever want to read a verse that includes every step to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it's Romans 10.9. If you confess, but then what does it say? That Jesus is Lord. You know, the Bible from the opening verses tells us that Jesus is Lord and King of the universe. And so what Paul is saying in Romans 10 is, do you agree with that? Do you own it? Is that the characteristic pattern of your life that you have submitted to Jesus as your King? Not just that you're acknowledging that somewhere out there he is King in that realm, but no, he is the King and Lord of your life. Now, how do you do that? Well, first of all, by acknowledging God is who he says he is, and that is that he is holy, he is creator, and he has the right to establish the standard of expectations. Have you been to that place in your life? And then you you believe that God in his expectations of those standards pronounces you and me at the moment of conception as guilty and worthy of experiencing eternal judgment in hell. And see, that, that should be weighty to us even if you're saved. 
And in that moment of acknowledging the the weight and the gravity of that situation that is impossible for us to lift it off, then we must believe that God provided the solution that we've been singing about today, that we sing about every Sunday, that is on every page of Scripture pointing us toward, and that is the solution is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, then you must respond. And the response is you confess your sins. The response is you commit your life to King Jesus. And so my question to you is this. If you want to even have the possibility of getting to a place where when Jesus says I'm coming, you hear nothing but love, have you submitted to him? And then number three, are you growing in your knowledge of him? Are you growing in your knowledge of him? How how do you do that? by studying this book. It's not by listening to me every Sunday. It's not by listening to podcasts. It's not by reading Christian authors. It's by you personally studying this book because this book is the greatest story ever written. It's the greatest story ever told. It is the most true and most hope-filled story because the central figure is Christ. And so that's actually a a gift to us to give us the lenses we need to read this book that when we come to this book, no matter what book we are studying, no matter what passage we're studying, that this book is first and foremost about Christ, not you and me. Not the person sitting next to you. And so if you want to get to the source that will teach you and educate you to know the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who says, behold, I am coming, you study this book, and and I can promise you this. Listen, what a promise this is. You will never plumb the depths of this book. You will never exhaust the truths of this book. You will never, like some of the greatest novels that you've ever read, be able to say, well, I I get it. I understand it. Never. In fact, this morning I was reading in Hebrews 4. I was reading that passage in verse 12 that says the word of God is, do you know it? It's living and active. There's no other book that can make that claim. And it doesn't mean that the meaning changes. It doesn't mean that the words change. It means that the discoveries and the understanding is always going to be growing in our lives. And then it says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is intended to cut, not just cut us for conviction, but cut our, our systems and our beliefs and make them stronger. It's intended to take what we thought was a sure tower of our understanding of Jesus and build it out even more. What a glorious treasure this is. My question to you is, are you growing in your understanding of him? And listen, friends, if the answer to all three of these questions is yes, then you and I will be able to join. Look at verse 17, the spirit and the bride. Do you see it in the text? And what do they say? At the end of the book of Revelation, after all of these these visions and these descriptions and this journey that John has been taking us on, the spirit and the bride say, come. And John says in verse 20, come. And the invitation from all of those who have gone before us, that's what the phrase, the one who hears 
those who have gone before us who have shown by the patterns of their life that they genuinely love Christ and they've been transformed by his work. They say, come. What an awesome, awesome reminder this is that love is motivated by presence. Friend, when you hear the Christ of Scripture as he's presented in Scripture, the Christ that stretches us, the Christ that convicts us, whenever you read the Gospels, I don't know about you, but I I see the way he responds to life, and I think, man, I, I don't respond that way. And I have a choice in that moment to either just say, well, but but that was Jesus. Or to say, no, 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 I'm supposed to be following him. If following him will actually lead to a satisfied life. How do we respond when Christ's presence is anticipated or it is found here in his word? Well, if you genuinely love him, it will be motivating to you. And we will join in saying, come, Lord Jesus. Number three, third attribute that I find in this text about love is that love is moved by prophecy. Love is moved by prophecy. I need to quickly run to a definition of prophecy because I know that's polarizing. I know we have all kinds of different experiences with this word. Let me define it this way. Prophecy is the bold declaration of direct divine revelation. Prophecy is the bold declaration of direct divine revelation. And up to the foundation being laid of the church that was often given directly from God to human beings and then they would teach it. He audibly would reveal it or reveal it in visions like he did to John. But after the foundation of the church was laid, it's now exclusively communicated to us from his word. There's no more direct revelation from God to us outside of his completed scriptures, Old and New Testament. And so it is that lens that I am using to understand what John and the angel and Jesus are saying in these verses. And let me unpack it for you by first of all showing you that prophecy, verse 6, is trustworthy and true. Isn't that awesome? Aren't there so many authorities in our lives that tend to change on a regular basis? But we can take to the bank without any wavering whatsoever that the prophecy, the direct revelation that is found in God's word is trustworthy and true. But then in verses 7, 9, 10, 18, and 19, we see that the words of the prophecy of this book are coming from God himself. That's what verses 6 and 16 say. The words of the prophecy contained in Revelation, yes, may have come in many respects, including this passage from angels, but ultimately they have been sent by God. What a reminder that is, that even though there were human authors of this book, The ultimate author is God himself. But then prophecy also has expectations. Look at verse 10. This is such a fascinating statement. And and I'll unpack this more when we study it in depth after the first of the year. But it says in verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. That's fascinating. 
Because, would you write this down? Daniel 12, 4, and 9. I've spent time throughout our study of Revelation providing a, a thesis or proposal that the same contents that are revealed to Daniel and Daniel 7 and following are the same contents that God chooses to reveal to John, but in Daniel 12, 4, and 9, the divine being tells Daniel, seal them up. But here the divine being says what? Do not seal them. Why? Because it's time to understand and apply them. Which moves to verse 11. And this is an interesting one. In the English it says, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And what's interesting is that it's translating from the original language commands. Isn't that interesting? This divine being is telling the evil, continue doing evil, and the filthy to continue being filthy. How could a representative of God and the message from God himself be that? The answer, friend, listen to this, is he is loving He's loving, and that's on display really in two ways, and I hope to make this clear. Number one, in what he says, and number two, the tools he gives to correct this. You see, what he's saying here by saying, let the evil do evil and the filthy continue to be filthy, and then the end of verse 11, and that is the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy, is this. People will do what they are. The, the living out patterns of someone's life will continue to be what they are because of who they are. And it's actually a gift for us because if we have been transformed by the blood of Christ, we will hear the warnings of Scripture and we will obey them, won't we? And the person who is living for the kingdom of man will continue giving evidence that they're citizens of the kingdom of man by continuing to do what they want and rejecting God's commands. And so it isn't as though God is commanding people to be sin and then by the very logic of that, now having responsibility, what he's saying is do what you do because of who you are and that will reveal what you need. Jim Hamilton illustrates it this way in his commentary on the book of Revelation. He says, imagine you're visiting the Grand Canyon and the tour guide brings you to the massive precipice and tells you to look over the edge and the drop is so deep that you are dizzy and maybe some of you have experienced that. And then he says, let the self-assertive fool who wants to destroy himself disregard caution, ignore my instruction and go over the edge. Now, of course, a human illustration that's not inspired by God breaks down at some point. But the point Hamilton's making is the point I'm trying to make, and that is that God's commanding the evil to do evil is not because he wants them to continue to do evil, but because it will demonstrate by the patterns of their lives who they actually are. And in so doing, prayerfully move them to the solution in their greatest need, which is found in verse 17. Look at what it says. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price 
drink it. Friends, this is the loving offer of Jesus. It is the reminder that if you're thirsty, he has the solution. If you're hungry, he has the nutrition. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. But he confronts us, doesn't he? Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well who was coming at the middle of the day? longing to get the nutrition from the water from the well. And Jesus says, this water will not satisfy. My water satisfies. He confronted her worldly lusts, her worldly desires, her desire to be satisfied by the world system by showing her that he offers something for free. Free in that we don't have to do anything. He did it all. And so my question for you at this point is now we move from just teaching about love to now responding to love. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The love for this Christ and an understanding of the gospel that he offers is intended to move us. And so, friend, when you hear the Bible say, let the evil continue to do evil, are you... Responding to that, saying, whew, great, I've got a hall pass. I can keep doing whatever I want to do. Oh, that's danger. That's the precipice. Destruction lies on the other end of that. In this moment, do you have the clarity and understanding to recognize that the true water of Christ's gospel, that the tree of life that is offered to you through his death and resurrection will save you from the cliff. If you've come to that realization in this moment, but never before, will you respond by giving your life to Christ and asking him to forgive your sins? Friend, if you've received that forgiveness, will you join the rest of the tour group by staying away from the precipice, by recognizing the prophecies of scripture are actually opportunities for you to live a life of true love, of true satisfaction, because they are the standards of righteousness set by Christ. In this most unexpected section of scripture, I pray that you've seen true love put on display. Love is marked by patterns. Love is motivated by presence and love is moved by prophecy. Let's take this end of the service and move this learning into living. Father, thank you for the love of Christ. I pray that we would be moved by it, that we would see it so clearly, and that if there's anyone here who has never surrendered their life to King Jesus, that today would be the day of their salvation. For those who have, that they would look at their lives and look for patterns that demonstrate love, that they would be moved by prophecy, that they would be motivated by presence, and in so doing, have a Christ-focused love that will enable us to experience that for which we have been created. All to the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen.